Welcome to Two Inch Heels, an autobiographical novel of my 11-week odyssey backpacking through Western Europe in 1973 at age 18, written and read by me, Cooper Zale. This is part 33, Down the Hill. Most of us Grindelwald hostel residents go down the hill to the local tavern for their daily happy hour, which gives me the opportunity for an initial close encounter with Ragna and an opportunity for me to partner with Derek, of all people. It was still Tuesday, November 27, 1973, in the Grindelwald Youth Hostel, and as most of us were finishing our yummy hostel-supplied dinner, somebody in the group shouted out, See you at the pub! And most everyone else laughed. I noticed that some people were hanging on to their plastic trays after bussing all their dishes and silverware, including the Cleveland gang. I looked at Derek and pointed at the tray in his hands. Transportation, he said with a grin. At least getting there. They were going to use their trays to slide down the road into town, as we had seen the kids do earlier on their sleds. A noble nod, I thought, to the goddess of play. So I played along, as it were, and kept my tray. There were about two dozen of us in that initial batch that headed down the mountain, including the Cleveland gang, Beth and her Aussie guys, Ragna and Monica, the latter still with her unbuttoned jacket, t-shirt, and no bra. That woman was indeed a total polar bear, impervious to the cold presumably from years of living in the frozen north. About half of us had trays, including Monica, but not her travel partner, Ragna. You going to walk, R? Monica queried her comrade. Apparently, they both called each other by the first letter of their name. R did not even crack a grin, the words sliding out of her lips like lizards. I'll walk behind him and drag your unconscious body to the side of the road so you don't get run over. But Monica was off, getting a running start and planting her rear end on the tray with clear indication of athleticism and skill. The goddess could run and rock a cafeteria tray. Remembering our card game this afternoon with her croupier persona and deadpan wit, it was a vintage Ragna comment, and I chuckled to myself and my admiration for her grew triumphing again over my conventional timidity, I decided to walk over to her and engage in conversation. So no tray? I asked her, my tease obvious in my tone and eyes. She just stared at me with her pursed lips, saying nothing, and then theatrically tilted her head down to look at me over her glasses, taking a you-must-be-kidding pose. I laughed. She cracked just the slightest little bit of a smile in response, which I, of course, noticed and enjoyed immensely. I walked alongside her, holding my tray under my arm, as we watched Monica, Derek, Michael, and Matt, and the others from our cohort on their trays, with various degrees of skill or lack thereof, sliding down the mountain to the first big curve. It was interesting to see them all behaving like playful kids after trying to be all sophisticated and grown up in the lodge at dinner, 
and I pondered which persona was more real. So are you going to use that thing or just carry it? Ragna interrogated me like the croupier asking for bets. I was tempted to just keep talking to her, but I said I would give it a try. She even offered to give me a push, but saying, I'll vigorously deny that I gave you that push if it leads to your demise. I sat on the tray with my butt as far back as possible, my knees up to my chest, and just the back tips of my boot soles on the front edge of the tray, gloved hands grasping each side edge. I felt her gloved hands on my shoulders. It felt good, electric even. I was in her hands. She said, God speed you, sir and took five or six running steps and sent me sliding down the road. It was not bitter cold, but the temperature was below freezing, and the packed snow on the road was nicely but not dangerously slick. Between Ragnar's push and the fairly steep grade, I easily had the momentum to get down at least to the first big turn in the road, as it wound its way down into the village in the little tavern that was our destination. The issue I immediately encountered was steering, and I tried to put my hands out on either side of me to keep me and my tray facing forward. But the first patch of snow I slid over that offered a little more of a tug of resistance, I slid right off the tray and quickly came to a stop, the tray managing to get by me and continued down the road. From my sitting position, I theatrically collapsed, spread eagle on the ground, swore and then laughed. Bravo, she said, doing a little genteel clap. Bravo. Indeed, I replied, reacting to her accent by mustering my favorite British word. Then trying my best to appear philosophical and above the fray, I continued in all the mock seriousness I could muster. I always hope in failure there are lessons to be learned. And in her sumptuous monotone, she replied, we all hope but it certainly can be painful to watch. She put her gloved hand out to help me up. I grasped it, and for a moment we were holding hands. But once upright, she immediately released it, as if not to appear too forward, just lending a hand, as it were, one human being to another. Ragna and I continued down the road with the others. I employed my mom's conversational technique that had worked so well for me with Trix and her crew on the train to Florence, asking her how she and Monica met. I found out they were actually almost stepsisters, though not officially so. Ragnar's mom had divorced her dad when she was nine, and then had started a serious relationship with one of her dad's friends, who happened to be Monica's widowed dad. Monica's mom, who had been an artist, writer, and actress, apparently of some notoriety, had died tragically of breast cancer, and even written and performed a one-woman show on the topic in the last couple years up to her death. Though Ragna was two years older, she and Monica had actually been going to the same school for several years, knew each other, but were decidedly not friends before their parents had become a couple and decided to move in together, but not to get married. If I had been given the opportunity to pick any of the girls at our school to be my quasi-sibling, she confessed with an ironic chuckle, 
It decidedly would not have been her. Ragna had then gone off to boarding school in England and then done two years of college at Cambridge, now taking a semester off with Monica to travel Europe. Ah, but I've come to cherish my bastard baby stepsister. She delivered the line with mock wistfulness, so I wasn't sure whether that was a genuine sentiment or not. I shared with Ragna that my parents had also divorced when I was nine, after several years of their relationship deteriorating and my dad finally being caught having an affair with another woman, which had been the last straw for my mom. After sharing that, feeling that I did not want her to think my dad was a terrible person, I told her that though we lived with our mom, our dad had continued to be very involved in my brothers and my life, and neither of them had remarried. We continued to share our divorce war stories as we walked down the road with the others towards the village, finally encountering my plastic tray at the first big turn in a ditch upside down by the side of the road. Eyeing the resting point for the runaway tray she noted in her delicious deadpan, you may have been fortunate you fell off when you did. But I am undaunted, I said, jumping down into the ditch and retrieving the tray. I placed it on the road, and as I sat on it, she commented, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin who said, Experience keeps a dear school, but fools will learn in no other. And she gave me another push. This time I held tightly to the sides of the tray with my gloved fingers to keep me from sliding off it, and held my bent legs out in front of the tray just off the ground to steer as needed. I put one hand in the air briefly to give a thumbs up to Ragna as I slid down the road, picking up speed as I went. Mastering the steering technique of briefly touching my boot heels on the snow, I managed to negotiate the next three turns and descended the length of the road, enjoying the rush of the speed, the cold, fresh mountain air, and the remnant glow of my exchange with Ragna above. When I finally got down to the tavern, the other tray riders had already entered, but I could see a stack of their trays by the front entrance and added mine to the top. Inside, my cohort was clustered around a couple long tables on one side of the place, while others, perhaps locals or European tourist types, sat on the other side. In age, dress, and hair, there was a pretty obvious generational and cultural divide. My group were all well under 30 in jeans, flannel, or t-shirts, and most of us had some variation of the freak flag hair, from long and either straight or curly or teased out hair that was generally referred to as a natural on a white person like me or Derek, or an afro on a black person like Michael. Michael, with his big Jimi Hendrix afro and headband, was the only black person in the bar. Many of my backpacker cohort had various facial hair, including beards, mustaches, or sideburns. But not me, of course. I was not growing facial hair yet. My own hair was more than a year out since its last haircut, which had been the previous fall during rehearsals for the musical Most Happy Fella at college, when our director insisted that he did not want his male cast, representing 1920s-era California immigrants, looking like a bunch of hippies. 
eight months after that, I had teased it up into a big natural for a part in another musical, The Flahooli Incident. And after the show was done, I had kept it that way. My hair was medium brown with big, thick curls that came out about three inches all around my head and were now touching my shoulders as well. The European tourists scattered around the rest of the place were generally older and had the shorter hair, more coiffed, and wore slacks and bright sweaters, either pullover or button-up. They definitely seemed more dressed up and fashion-conscious in their apparel than my crowd. They spoke mostly German and some Italian, and looked at all of us as a kind of curiosity, but not in any sort of parochial or xenophobic way, just a friendlier sort of generation gap. Sitting between the tourists and us, older men with their caps and peacoats, looking like actual residents perhaps of the village, perched on stools around the U-shaped bar. I squeezed in on the end of the table next to Michael and Matt. I could see Beth and Monica way over at the other end, sucking down big glass mugs of beer and laughing bodily at statements made by what I'm sure was an attentive bunch of guys around them. When Ragna and the rest of the walkers finally came in about five minutes later, Monica saw her and yelled out something in probably Swedish and waved her arms back and forth, causing her big unsheathed boobs to bounce, obviously in her t-shirt. I'm sure to the delight of her male admirers, including me. Ragna, looking very much like a fish out of water, and just briefly making eye contact with me, worked her way through the crowd and was grateful to find somewhere to sit behind Monica in the corner. With our last group now joining us, we filled the entire side of the tavern and outnumbered all others in the place. We ordered lots of big pitchers of some local beer on tap that was on special that night at half price until 8 o'clock, which I realized had motivated the quick exodus from dinner back at the lodge. I threw in 10 Swiss francs to contribute to the beer fund and soon had my own big glass mug of the cool, but not cold, amber fluid with the bitter bite of real beer that I was learning to love here in Europe not the wimpy, champagne-like beers that we had in the States. Feeling the alcohol, we all got louder and less inhibited and were becoming part of the entertainment of sorts for the rest of the customers at the bar. As the time passed, Matt, who had been the most reticent of the Clevelanders, but now on maybe his third beer, shared with me a bit of excitement that had happened on their slide down the road on their trays. As he told it, Monica had purposely kept crashing her tray into Michael's as the two of them raced down the hill until finally she crashed them both into a snowbank and was on top of him laughing and smashing snow in his face. I looked at Michael, who was listening to the retelling attentively, and he just grinned sheepishly and nodded that his comrade's rendition was accurate. Derek was rolling his eyes and said, that chick is a total, I expected him to say slut again, but instead he said maniac and said it without the negative charge he had applied to the more derogatory adjective before. 
Oh, I was again so fucking jealous of Michael in that moment. Him being pursued by this apparently hedonistic, uninhibited, sexy young woman. But if she had been chasing me, would I even have been willing to be caught? Or would I have fled in the fullness of my timidity? I had to reconcile myself to that somehow. But it was hard to do so. Easier to just be jealous. One of the older guys sitting on a stool at the bar near us raised his beer mug and clinked it with a fork to get our attention and said with telegraphed tentativeness and a twinkle in his eye, To Nixon? querying our sentiment, but presuming the answer. Many of us groaned and booed, not just the Yanks among us, but Aussies, Kiwis, and Brits too. There were a couple shouts of, Fuck Nixon! and and then a couple fuck Heath, the current conservative British prime minister, thrown in for good measure. The older guy at the bar and his buddies laughed. He raised his mug again and said, Rock and roll! And we almost all called out an assent. Except perhaps Ragna, playing the observant anthropologist in the corner. The local brew flowed while it was still cheap, and we were all quickly under its spell. Again, except Ragna, who nursed her original mug with small sips. At one point, the old men at the bar started singing what presumably was some sort of drinking song in German for our consumption to show us they could be fun and raucous as well. I still find it interesting that German, with all its guttural consonants, seemed like a hard language to sing in, unless you were in fact inebriated and happily slur all the g and k sounds. They sang and did so with gusto, and we acknowledged them, swinging our mugs to their tempo and trying to sing the chorus once we had heard it a couple times, finally breaking into shouts and applause at the end. I don't know what got into me, other than a couple quickly downed pints of beer and wanting so badly to be the subject of Monica's lust. But when Derek said to me and his buddies, we need a song, I just spontaneously started belting out the Beatles' Yellow Submarine, which turns out most everyone in our group knew and joined in, including Beth, Monica, and even eventually Ragna. In the town where I was born, lived a man who sailed to sea and he told us of his life in the land of submarines so we sailed up to the sun till we found the sea of green and we lived beneath the waves in our yellow submarine. It was the perfectly off-the-wall song to sing up in the mountains at the center of the continent hundreds of miles from any oceans or seas, and we sang it with fervor, if not quite gusto. Even more so for the chorus, since everyone knew that cold, or certainly so after the first time through, we all live in a yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine. 
We all live in a yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine. There were several people in the group besides me who even knew the words of the second verse, with the rest joining in once we started and it came back to them. And our friends are all aboard, many more of them live next door. And the band begins to play. What followed in the real song was an instrumental line with a brass band playing. And a handful of us, including Derek and I, tried to imitate the band instruments in a half-assed sort of way, which quickly broke down to chaos and laughing. But the momentum of the song was quickly recaptured by the second go of the chorus. The third verse had its call and response, and I led the call part, and Derek, who seemed transformed by this whole experience, or perhaps just the alcohol, knew and led the response. As we live a life of ease, a life of ease, every one of us, every one of us has all we need, has all we need. Sky of blue, sky of blue, and sea of green, sea of green, in our yellow, in our yellow, submarine, submarine. When we completed our song, many of the European tourist types in the place applauded. And the old guys sitting at the bar raised their glasses to us, and we raised ours right back at them. It was just one of those moments. In a little village tavern, in a little valley nestled amongst humongous mountains, which still had not revealed themselves, in the middle of the European continent, on planet Earth towards the end of the 20th century of the common era. And so the evening went, and when the hour for cheap pitchers ended and our collective beer fund finally dried up, several of the tourist types and the old guy at the bar bought us more. Inspired by their own joyous intoxication, the joyous part we having contributed to. And I think they were also relieved that though we looked like hippies, we were apparently fun and mostly harmless. Even the bartender, probably the owner, gave us a round of pitchers for free. There was a fleeting gestalt of the cohesion of the human species and the generational acknowledgement and passing of the torch. My cohort, mostly faux freaks, actually, with our self-conscious big hair and store-bought bell-bottoms, we're not so blatantly challenging everything the establishment or the man had created before us. We might even trust at least a few people over 30 if they were cool enough or bought us a round of beers. And we would settle for social lubrication with their alcohol rather than our own generational intoxicant marijuana or hash. And when I and my fellow hostelers finally left the bar, to trudge back up the hill to get to the hostel before they locked us out for the night. And the story was that they would indeed lock us out. That whole run on a schedule thing again. We had a sense of solidarity and blessing that exceeded our inebriation. A couple of our number, worse for wear from their alcohol consumption, were helped with a hand or shoulder from their comrades. Matt had his arm around Derek's shoulders, the latter having gotten sick and bowed down to the porcelain god, as the Aussies would say. 
but most of us have learned from experience how to hold our liquor like the older generation did. It was noticeably colder and the air was now drier and crisper and my nasal membranes got that sensation of swelling and collapsing as the cold air passed through them. Those of us who had taken trays to leverage gravity to get down the hill now had to carry them back up. Not a big deal, but that was at least one hand that one could not keep in their jacket pocket for maximum warmth. I noticed that even Monica had her light jacket zipped up as she walked up the hill in front of us, still displaying her obvious physical fitness and awesome butt, but now in a sisterly way, arm in arm with Ragna. It was probably the mix of my hormones and the alcohol inspiring the thinking, but it struck me in that moment that a woman's rear end was generally, by patriarchal convention and physiology perhaps, allowed to swing back and forth significantly more unlimbered than a man's, conveying so much personality in its sensuous rhythm, Monica in particular letting her body fully express everything that it was about. I walked next to Michael who I noticed was pensively staring off into space between glances in her direction. We started our ascent in a spent and mostly silent trudge, one foot deliberately after the other, crunching on the matted snow of the road winding up the hill. We collectively felt the drag of gravity and the slog of challenging it in our diminished capacity. And a couple of the British guys in our group in an effort to help us all better endure that slog, started singing the song Marching to Pretoria, a British marching song from the Boer War in South Africa, made popular in the States by the folk group The Weavers, but familiar to me mostly from hearing a comic rendition by the Smothers Brothers. It was a classic marching song, which I had actually been first taught in elementary school and many of us joined in with its appropriately simple melody and lyric that lent itself to one-syllable verb substitutions to launch each new verse. Sing with me, I'll sing with you, and so we will sing together, so we will sing together, so we will sing together. Sing with me, I'll sing with you, and so we will sing together as we march along. We are marching to Pretoria, Pretoria, Pretoria. We are marching to Pretoria, Pretoria, hoorah. By the end of that first verse and chorus, pretty much everyone was singing along, even Ragna, who was thrusting her fist into the air at the appropriate moments for emphasis. So for the second verse, someone called out walk, and we swapped it in for sing. Walk with me, I'll walk with you, and so we will walk together. So we will walk together. So we will walk together. Walk with me, I'll walk with you. So we will walk together as we march along. After walk, the improvised substitutions continued, called out by somebody randomly before the verse started, and eventually getting more apropos to our situation. 
drink with me, trudge with me, freeze with me, etc., though not barf, as the two dozen of us continued up the hill, me singing louder than most with my theater-trained voice, always enjoying the opportunity to join comrades in song. At one of those moments for calling out the next verse's verb, someone said, fuck, perhaps thinking it was a playful monkey wrench to throw into our singing machine. There was the expected burst of laughs, but people went right into the verse undaunted. Fuck with me, I'll fuck with you, and so we will fuck together. So we will fuck together. So we will fuck together. Fuck with me, I'll fuck with you. So we will fuck together as we march along. During that particular verse, I glanced at Monica and Ragna, still arm in arm in front of us, Monica joyously belting out the words, but Ragna silent. I thought of my dad, the English professor and semanticist, and noticed the difference in the meaning in the word in its various contexts. Fuck with me or fuck with you, generally a pejorative, fuck subbing as an amped up version of the word mess, but then fuck together, though somewhat redundant, the fourth base of sexual intimacy. I also thought of my feminist aunt Mary Jane, who had on occasion noted that the pejorative meanings of fuck fit perfectly into patriarchal thinking of sex as a weapon used by men to keep women in their place. And finally, of course, the thought that having sex while you marched was another thing entirely and pretty ridiculous. We finally arrived at our destination, and the grinning hostile staffer, perhaps just three or four years older than I, with his own long, straight version of freak flag hair, opening the door for us and perhaps noting on his watch that we had 12 minutes to spare. Call-outs of good night between everyone and quickly stumbling to the bunk room. I fell asleep in the cradle of my cohort's solidarity and my own important contribution to it as a song leader at the bar feeling like a little bit more of the me I long to be. So concludes the 33rd chapter of Two Inch Heels. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next chapter, where I have a close encounter with Monica, but several more with Ragna as well. 